Welcome to Sex Unshackled. I am Becky Krepsley Fox, and this podcast is where sexuality and spirituality meet. Today on Sex Unshackled, I have Silva Nevis with me. Silva is a COSRT accredited and UKCP registered psychosexual and relationship psychotherapist, a trauma psychotherapist, EMDR therapist, and a pink therapy clinical associate. Silva sees individuals and couples presenting with a wide range of sex and relationship issues and specializes in working with sexual trauma, affairs, and compulsive sexual behaviors. Silva speaks internationally and was featured in the BBC program Sex on the Couch. Silva, can you please tell the listeners what brought you to this work? Hi. Hi. I love my work because um, when I first trained as a psychotherapist in, in my core training, I realized that there was basically hardly any time allocated to sex and relationships. And when I started to work with people feeling uh, bad about themselves for one reason or another, a lot of the time it was to do with not being quite happy in their relationships or having some, some sexual problems that they felt they couldn't really speak about or, or address. So then I thought, well, let's just retrain, uh, do, do an extra training after, after my original training and become a psychosexual and relationship psychotherapist. And I've not looked back since because now I realize that uh, it is the work I really love doing and it's providing a space for clients that uh, isn't really provided um, in the mainstream psychotherapy. So I feel always very privileged when clients can come in and talk about the sex life in the first session. Yeah, I really get that because we're already connecting with someone straight away on such an intimate level and they're trusting us with the most intimate parts about their life. And it does feel like an honor to me, I think. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And you can really go really deep into people's core issues because sex is not just sex. It's so much. It's connections. It's uh, relationships. It's uh, feeling alive. So um, it really goes deep. Yeah, and I think relationships are kind of like the underpinning of everything. So on, on our issues, our anxieties, if we're feeling depressed, you know, stresses, there's generally something relational about it, either with relationship to others, relation to ourselves or the lack of others, perhaps. And it's something that's really just not talked about so much. So um, yeah, I'm really great that you made that transition from psychotherapist to psychosexual work and relationship work because yeah, it's just awesome. It is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So today we're gonna talk about compulsive sexual behaviors. Silva, can you tell the listeners what a compulsive sexual behavior is or what that might look like? Yes. So in a nutshell, it's a, it's a quite complex situation. I could be talking for hours about it. So in a nutshell, <laughs> it's, a, it's an unwanted sexual behavior that is repetitive and one that produces no pleasure and one that also uh, has significant impairment uh, or produces significant impairment in people's lives. So in the rest of their lives, something that has to be so... Um, taking over so much that people don't have um, the time or the space to look after other areas of their lives, like basic self-care, basically. And there has to be a behavior that the person themselves feel like it's out of control and it's unwanted uh, for themselves rather than feeling it's unwanted because of the external judgments. So if somebody reads a book, for example, and they say, oh, having threesomes is wrong, 
uh, and then they think, oh gosh, I'm having threesomes, so that's wrong. Then that's actually not classified as compulsive sexual behaviors. Mm. And, and so it has to be all of those elements together to, uh, for us to start to begin to think maybe there is sexual compulsivity um, in the picture. And it's very complex because sexual compulsivity is often mistaken for um, people who um, have uh, sexuality and relationship diversity that is not part of the norms of what we, we deem as a society, we deem as, as okay. For example, monogamy or penis in vagina sex, that stuff seems to be like the standard and people that deviate from that um, they can, you know, the, the judgment can be, oh gosh, there's got to be something wrong with that person. So, uh, you know, some people that enjoy sex with multiple casual partners, for example, and have that as their important sexual orientation, and they're saying, I don't really want a, one partner for life, I just want multiple casual partners. And that's what I'm happy with. If people say that, uh, they will often be met in a judgment of, well, surely there's something wrong with that person. And sometimes the, there are different labels and some, one of the most uh, famous label that people put on uh, people like that is called sex addiction. And so people say, oh, surely that person must be a sex addict. And that's kind of like a, the common language. Having said that, there are some people that genuinely struggles with compulsive sexual behaviors. And uh, those ones are the ones that really feel like thinking like, okay, so I'm committed with a partner. I love my partner. There's nothing really wrong, um, you know, with our love life or our sex life. Yet somehow I also feel compelled to have sex outside of my uh, agreed relationship boundaries. And I don't like it. It makes me feel very bad about myself. And somehow I can't stop and I don't know why I'm doing this. So if a client comes, comes with that, I start to, you know, we start to look at, you know, okay, maybe there is a sexual compulsivity issue here. And, you know, the first thing that I do is looking at what is underneath, what is the, what is the motor of that uh, compulsivity for that person? Because with every client, it's a different story with a different uh, nature of of the compulsivity. It's really interesting what you said. Um, the thing that's jumping out at me is that it there can't be any enjoyment from it. So I'm wondering, could there be enjoyment in the actual act of sex itself, but then feeling unwanted feelings afterwards? Or would it not be a compulsive sexual behavior if there was enjoyment? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because that's when, um, strictly speaking, if we look at the, the only diagnostic criteria that we have for compulsive sexual behavior disorder, which is the ICD-11 one from the World Health Organization, uh, it states that uh, the behavior has to produce no pleasure. And uh, with uh, sex and sexual behaviors, often, even if the behavior is unwanted, there will be some element of pleasure. Um, most people will experience a, a pleasure with an orgasm or they will experience pleasure being touched in, in a certain way on, on their bodies. So actually the pleasure element is most often there all the time. Mm -hmm. And it means that most often the diagnosis for the disorder uh, is rolled out. So although we have a cr diagnostic criteria now, it's actually more helpful to undiagnose people who come in and say, I've got a disease, I'm a sex addict, I've, you know, I can't stop. And when you actually look at all the criteria very properly, the, the pleasure one is usually the one 
um, as well as the uh, no external judgment one, those two are usually the two that uh, rule out the disorder for most people. So then when people don't meet the criteria for the disorder, what we have left is people who have sexual behavior problems, but they actually don't have a disorder. Yeah, and just following on from what you were saying before about how people feel like they have a problem if they are not mainstream orientation or relationship orientation. And, you know, sometimes I get clients who come to me in private practice and say they think they have a porn addiction. And then I ask them, well, how frequently do you watch um, masturbate to porn? And they might say once a week or twice a week. And it's to do with maybe the people around them, their relationships or the society around them that has induced so much shame that they feel like watching porn once or twice a week is an out of control behavior. Exactly right, yes. Um, Porn at the moment is a very uh, difficult topic because there is so much porn panic out there in in our society and on social media. And people are really afraid of it because they are mostly misinformed. Um, Each time there is an issue, porn is blamed for it for some reason. But when we look at the actual science of sexology, um, it, the, the research comes back time and time again that pornography itself actually does not cause any um, sexual relationship or mental uh, health problems. So if the porn itself doesn't do it, then what is it? And often, as you say, it's actually the shame behind it that makes people feel very, very bad about it. There is somebody that can be watching porn and masturbating to it once a day and uh, might feel completely fine with it if there's no shame compared to somebody who has a lot of shame either because they might have some religious values that uh, are anti-porn or as you say somebody else or a a girlfriend or a boyfriend disagreeing with it and they could be watching porn and masturbating to it once a week and feel terrible about it and feel like it's already too much and 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 their behavior is out of control. So uh, the people coming and say, I've got a porn addiction, or even people coming and say, I've got a sex addiction, often their own perception of their problem is based on their moral values. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And why do you think it's important to have this differentiation of porn or sex addiction um, versus compulsive sexual behavior? Um, well, Um, A lot of the therapists are really disagreeing uh, with different different ways of talking about it because some people say it actually doesn't matter what you call it, Um, you know, whether some people call it sex addiction or they call it compulsive sexual behaviors. uh, Why do we care, right? It's somebody who has sexual behavior problems. Let's just work with that. And on some level, I agree with that. You know, we have to work with what the client brings and be there present with the client. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, as a therapist, as a psychotherapist, where you know, we are supposed to be led by evidence-based uh, science, um, I think that labels, although not always helpful for clients, are helpful for us because words are really powerful. One word can be very powerful and one word can actually really, really harm people. And the most recent example that we have in the sexual behavior arena is uh, when homosexuality was uh, a mental health disorder. And it was, you know, as a disorder. And that was also in an ICD, in in a previous edition of the ICD as a disorder. And that one word, homosexuality, 
as a disorder, harmed and actually killed a lot of people. And it was only in 1990 that the, the, the mental health disorder was taken off the ICD for homosexuality, so it's very recent. So if, you, if we look at the history of sexual health, um, you know, we got it wrong a lot, right? Yeah. And it's not, homosexuality is the most recent one, but it's not the only time we got sexual behavior classification wrong. And, um, and that's why I'm very passionate about talking about compulsive sexual behaviors not being an addiction because the word addiction is very loaded. It's a pathology word. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for therapists to be very clear about the words that we choose that are uh, evidence-based endorsed words are very important for us to keep and to promote and to educate the public about it. You know, I don't think we should perpetuate the, the myth that sex is addictive because if we perpetuate the myth, then nobody learns anything new. And when ICD-11 came up with the compulsive sexual behavior disorder diagnostic, they also uh, specifically stated that it is not an addiction, it is under impulse control, which is very different. And they specifically said that sex addiction and compulsive sexual behavior disorder should not be terms that are interchangeable. So they are not meaning the same things. Fascinating. So the brain reacts differently to impulse control than it does to addiction. Well, addiction is, uh, you know, the, the clinical term of addiction. So again, you know, the, the public uses the word addiction all the time because it's becoming so popular. People say, I'm a chocolate addict, I'm a shop addict, <laughs> yeah. I'm a Netflix addict. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But actually that's like a popular term, right? Um, and, uh, but clinically an addiction is a pathology and it's a very, uh, has some very strict criteria to call it something an addiction. And uh, in fact, the DSM-5 has uh, rejected behavioral addictions altogether, apart from gambling, because there's some uh, really robust research about that, but it's rejected gaming addiction, shopping addiction, and sex addiction, because there's just simply not enough evidence. Uh, and, and, the, and the addiction criteria are not met um, uh, with sex and porn. And, and, you know, and there has been a lot of research, a lot and lots of research, especially in the last 10 years, the field of sexology has really made a lot of effort to try to figure, figure out what sexual compulsivity is. And every single research really came back as um, it's not an addiction. We can't see it. Right. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, and of course, it's, it's quite similar because compulsive compulsivity uh, the behavior on the surface looks like an addiction. So it's easy to make the mistake. But if you really, really look at the proper criteria for addiction, one of the biggie that we don't see in sex is uh, tolerance. So tolerance means that when people say, for example, they take drugs or they drink uh, alcohol, they, because it's a chemical that is outside of the brain rather than a chemical that is engineered by our own brain, it means that that it actually really messes up with our brain because it's an external substance. And over time for the brain to continue to function, it, 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 it basically requires more of the substance to achieve the same pleasure. So, you know, if we go back to pleasure, drugs, the first time you take a drug or the first time that you have a drink, it might feel pleasurable, but then the pleasure stops. Be- mm. and, and, and in order to, to get the same pleasure, the same pleasure, you have to have more. That's what we call tolerance. That doesn't happen with sex or even with porn, because when we experience an orgasm, we have the pleasure, 
And usually when we experience another orgasm the, the next day, we have the same pleasure. And, and, and orgasm never stops being pleasurable. And so there is no tolerance with that. But what, what we find often people say, well, my sexual behavior has escalated from um, watching porn once a day to watching porn three times a day. Or they might say, my behavior is escalated from watching porn to then visiting a sex worker. And that is kind of not uh, an escalation in terms of tolerance. It's not because you, want, you need more to achieve the same pleasure. It's actually because you want a different pleasure. And, and part of our sex, sex life is that sometimes we actually need novelty to keep, to keep our sex life going. And whether you have a sexual compulsivity issue or not, we all need some novelties. And so it's actually a natural process to, to keep our, our sex life alive with novelty. And that's for people mistake it with escalation in, in some sexual behaviors. And some people, very few, but some people sometimes say, well, I did have sex and I did have an orgasm, but I did not feel any pleasure. And it doesn't happen often, and, but sometimes it does happen. And these people is not actually because they are becoming tolerant to it. It's because they're actually in dissociation. And that's, uh, that's quite different. Dissociation is um, when there is actually maybe a trauma underneath and people are actually not feeling their body. And it's the same, the same phenomenon as when you sit in the cinema with a big uh, bag of popcorn and then you look down and suddenly the bag of popcorn <laughs> is empty and the film hasn't started yet. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that's, that's because we eat popcorns in dissociation, right? Yes. And it doesn't mean that you're addicted to popcorn. It doesn't mean that you're going to be tolerant to it because the next time you have popcorn and you're mindful, you, you get the same pleasure of popcorn than the time before. So, um, so that's important for people to understand that dissociation is not the same as uh, tolerance building. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that we have not never seen. Uh, tolerance, we have never seen that. It's very common for drugs and alcohol, and we've never seen it with sex. That's such an interesting idea, idea because I'm thinking, wow, imagine if sex wasn't limitless and the most the more times you have it the less times you can have it in the future it's almost like your quota is up and um, that would just be yeah so crazy yeah. <laughs> yes and and also the the sexology uh, research shows that having frequent orgasm is actually very good for your health yes and, and nobody's ever died of, of an orgasm uh, overdose um, but, you know, yeah. people can actually die out of a drug overdose of, or alcoholism. So, yeah. you know, a part of me really feels that calling sex an addiction is actually really quite disrespectful for the people that really struggle from a, a real addiction like drug addiction and, and uh, alcohol, because that is really, really dangerous mm -hmm. and people do die from it. Uh, but the other thing that in terms of neuroscience that we've never seen um, with sex, that, that is also uh, an important criteria to call something an addiction, is the withdrawal aspect. So again, because addiction is part of its external substance that messes up with your brain, if you decide to stop the drugs or stop the alcohol straight away, then your body can actually go into shock. And it's like a, almost like a tissue shock. You know, it's a very physiological part, which is very, very dangerous. Um, but that has never been observed with sex or porn either. So even if you watch porn five times a day, every day for five years, and then you decide to stop straight away, you will not go into shock. And same, same with sex. Yeah. It makes so much sense when you explain it. it. Makes perfect sense. Of course, it's not an addiction compared to other other addictions such as alcohol and drugs. Um, 
yeah so if the if any of the listeners are listening to this and they feel like they have a compulsive sexual behavior and they don't know what to do next where should they go what should they do or what should they not do <laughs> well i think um one of the one of the if somebody struggles with sexual compulsivity one of the first thing they will do is to go online and google it <laughs> and what they are most likely to find is sex addiction narrative and and a lot of addiction literature um because that's what's the most popular at the moment and they might feel like they need to go to a place like a 12 a 12 step fellowship program like sex addict anonymous or sex and love addict anonymous um and um because they are they're very popular they're all over the place especially in london or in big cities and it's free so it's easy easily accessible uh, the problem with that, I, a, a lot of people, including therapists, recommend 12-step programs, and I disagree uh, very much with it because 12-step uh, programs are not uh, sexology-informed at all. And if you actually read the book, the Sex Addict Anonymous, Anonymous book that they are uh, going by, it's really, really sex-shaming, sex-negative, uh, lots and lots of terrible lessons about sex and relationships in that book. Um, they call it a non-religious book, but God is literally written in every page. So I just really don't know how they figure that out. Yes. Um, but to me, it really feels like it's taking, it's repressing sex and putting it into a church box. Um, and unfortunately, although it might help people stopping behaviors, because that's the only concern, that's the only goal of 12 Step is to actually stop doing sex and to become a really nice <laughs> Christian person, maybe, <laughs> yeah. or, so, or somebody who has a little bit of sex, but not too much, just the Goldilocks zone, and preferably monogamous and heterosexual, please. Uh, and if you can meet all of those lovely tiny little box, then you're then 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 you're you're doing your recovery well. Well, the problem with that is that most people will not fit that tiny little box, but they will be told that it is the right path. And if they don't take that path, then they're not doing the recovery right. And, and even being told not doing recovery right actually really increases shame for people. And so um, a lot of people that have come to me after doing a 12-step uh, program, they often feel so much worse about themselves. They might have said, hey, I don't, I don't do sex addiction anymore. I don't... I don't uh, I stopped seeing sex workers, so sure, it must have worked. And then they also say, but I don't. I have no idea how to have sex. I have no idea how to approach people. I have no idea how to touch my own body. I, have, I feel a lot of shame each time I have a thought about sex, each time I have a sexual fantasy, each time I think about something, each time I see a poster of, a, of a, you know, somebody in a bikini and, and you know, feeling aroused. So it's basically... Uh, the, the sexual repression is causing a lot of damage in people's sex lives. And, and, and the shame is so uh, increases so much that people feel so, so lost uh, because in, in the, in the 12 step programs and in that book, the sex addict anonymous, it's all about stopping, but actually there's hardly any guidance about how to embrace your sexuality and how to have, you know, the sex that you want. It's so it's only having the sex that they want you to have, you know, which is different. And the reason why I'm banging on about that is because actually for me, it feels like conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And conversion therapy is basically when somebody else is telling people that there is one right way to have sex and, and the rest is deviant. Uh, deviant. And, and of course, conversion therapy is mostly understood in the context of uh, uh, people in uh, LGBTQ relationships. Um, conversion therapy wants to convert the gay people back into becoming heterosexual. And that's what's most known for. Of course, now we're trying to ban it, which, uh, which is very much needed. But actually, I think conversion therapy is operating um, in, a, in the disguise of, of sex addiction and 12-step programs because uh, it, the system is the same. Is somebody, an authority, saying your sexual behaviors are wrong and we're going to change you to have the sexual behaviors that we think is right for you. And with that, with trusted programs, there is no exploration at all about a person's erotic mind. And some of the narratives of the 12-step program is that having a sexual thought or sexual fantasies is also wrong. So people that can have spontaneous, you know, you're waking up in the morning, you have a spontaneous sexual fantasy, and they will already feel diseased because they're not supposed to have the sexual fantasy. And we know as sex sex therapists that sexual fantasies and sexual thoughts, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with them. It's it's healthy. It can be a good place. They're not dangerous. They're not a gateway to anything. Um, And and unfortunately, people really try to repress those things very hard. So um, unfortunately, if you look at, say, for example, a heterosexual man who uh, enjoys a lot of kink and has been seeing, let's say, a dominatrix to meet his kink um, erotic mind, but was also married in a monogamous relationship to a wife who didn't practice kink. So he was basically cheating on her with the dominatrix. The wife gets really angry. She says, you're a sex addict. He says, yes, you're right, I'm a sex addict. And then goes to a drafter program. They tell him kick is bad and wrong. They attempt to change his kink. And all, all he's going to do is repress it further down only to explode a bit later on into something even worse. So, and then feeling worse about himself when he explodes again and has what they call the relapse. Um, and it and goes on and on and on like this in circle. People just keep feeling bad day after day after day with no, never thinking that maybe kink could be a, a good and healthy and, and vibrant erotic mind for that person. So attempting to change somebody like this, even though they're heterosexual, in my book is like conversion therapy. And we, what we know about conversion therapy is that it's a harmful practice. That's why we want to ban it because it's a harmful practice. It uh, really causes a lot of psychological distress to people, even all the way down to suicidal thoughts. I've had clients time and time and time again coming to me and said, I had a sex addiction problem. I went to 12-step programs. Now I feel suicidal and in despair. And, you know, never, and previously never had suicidal thoughts. And that's a very big problem for me. So now, of course, many people say, oh, 12-step programs has been great to me and it's been wonderful. Um, And great if it works for some people, that's fine. But because I have been hearing too many stories of of the harmful practice of 12-step programs that as a therapist in full integrity, I cannot recommend 12-step programs because the the likelihood of harm is just too high for me. Mm -hmm. 
I'm glad you brought up the word conversion therapy because that was just like ringing round and round in my mind as you were talking, because that's exactly what it is, denying someone of their orientation and of their preferences. And I feel like the 12-step program, as you were describing it, is trying to change the behavior, but not looking at any of the thoughts, the emotions, the story underneath. So of course, there's going to make people feel worse about themselves. Of course, it's going to make people bottle it up to then explode because we're not working on, well, what, what are you getting from those behaviors? What do they give you? Um, what, what's underneath all of that? So yeah, I completely agree with everything that you're saying. Uh, yeah, and but you know, unfortunately, it's not really talked a lot uh, about uh, out there. And um, many therapists that are, you know, sex therapists like our colleagues who really want to do the best for their clients because they don't know um, that there is another side to 12 steps that never gets talked about. So they would, in, in really good faith, recommend clients to go to a, a SAA or a, a SLA program, thinking those are the good places to go. Um, and, and unfortunately, they might be sending their clients to a sex-negative, sex-shaming uh, place where there's risk of, of conversion therapy. And it's really, really sad. And, and the reason why I think a lot of people that have been harmed by 12-step programs don't speak up is because by the time they finish, they are so full of shame that they are just so afraid to, to speak up. So they, they speak to a therapist like me. Because, you know, the reason why they come to me is just because I put it on my website that I don't work with 12 steps. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so they come to me and, and in private, behind closed doors, they tell me about their trauma of the 12-step programs. And so... Um, and therefore, I find that it's my duty to speak up because it is one of the dark side of 12 steps that nobody talks about. So we've been speaking a lot about shame. And I'm really aware that if someone is disclosing a kink or an orientation or a compulsive behavior to their family, friends or partners, um, that could also be a space that is filled with shame because yeah. the partner might not understand it, the friends might um, ridicule them for it. So I'm wondering if you have any advice, both from the person who might be disclosing and also um, anyone who gets disclosed too, of how to deal with that in a non-stigmatizing, non-shameful way. Hmm. Yes, well, um, the disclosure of, of compulsivity, of sexual compulsivity is pretty difficult because of course that means they're going to break the partner's heart. Uh, you know, and from the partner's point of view, it's going to be pretty hard to take and pretty hard to hear uh, because some behaviors will be so far out to what they thought their, um, you know, their partner was going to be doing. You know, when you think you're, you're in a monogamous relationship with somebody who enjoys having sex with you mm -hmm. and suddenly you find out that your partner has been having sex also uh, without your consent with five, six, seven, ten other people, sometimes of different genders, sometimes of people looking completely different from you, uh, and sometimes in situations and with kink that you never thought they had. Uh, that's really, uh, really actually quite traumatizing, you know, mm -hmm. for, for the partner. Uh, but you know what, if it's actually the disclosure happening from the person who has sexual compulsivity to the partner, and if it's done in a, in a has kind way without too much gritty details, and I think it's important not to give too many gritty details because those details can be too much for the partner. Yeah. But just to say, um, this has been happening and, and it's, it's not because I don't love you. It's not because of, it's just because of something that's I own and I need to deal with myself. You know, that's an important message because 
often partners will also also think, well, that's because they don't like me, they don't love me, they don't find me attractive. So to not blame the partner for it is an important bit. And for people to come um, just with the big lines, the big headlines without the details, that's really important. And then the rest, they have to own it and go to their own therapist for, for that. Um, but unfortunately, the problem is that in most stories, uh, disclosure doesn't happen because the partners found that by catching them or by being uh, they're being caught rather than disclosing themselves before they're being caught and that is very very traumatic for partners because then they think well if I didn't see that text popping up on the iPad or if I didn't see um, the condom in the bin then he or she would have never told me about it and so then you know I felt pretty pretty bad about this you know that's a big disrespect piece um, and that is very, very hard. And, and a, lot of, uh, a lot of relationships really break down because of that, you know, because then the partner is thinking, how could I possibly trust, you know, this, this person again? Yeah. So, so my advice, you know, just to answer your question, I don't know if I answer your question, but just to answer your <laughs> question, my advice is if you, if you have a sexual compulsivity problem, you think you have a, a sexual behavior problem like that, don't wait until you get caught. Yeah. <laughs> Find your own therapist that, and if you don't want to have a therapist that's going to be a 12-step program therapist, find a therapist that clearly says they don't work with the addiction model, they work with a sex-positive framework, uh, find one of those therapists, have a few sessions with them, ask them how to, what's the best way to disclose, prepare yourself, and then make the disclosure before you get found out. That's basically yeah. the, uh, the advice. Perfect. Silver, it has been so great having you here today. Thank you so much for coming. Could you please tell the listeners where they can find you? You can find me on my website. That's uh, my name, silverneves.co.uk. And uh, at the moment, I am fully booked. But if you are looking for a therapist who is working uh, with a sex positive approach, please, please do email me. I never mind any emails because I have a, a, quite a lot of colleagues I can refer you to. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you.